Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Welcome in to episode 55 of the Bluest Tape. I'm Harvey Couch, alongside Jeff Coleth. And thanks for joining us as we take our weekly journey through the live catalog of Widespread Panic. Um, last two weeks have been, you know, sort of special editions of the Bluest Tape as we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the release of Light Fuse Getaway, Widespread Panic's very first uh, live bonafide live record and um this week we're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of something related to that which is the record release party of light fuse getaway which happened on april 18th 1998 and uh if i'm efficient i'll want to get this out actually on that day but it may be the day after so we'll see (laughs) but um do you uh, do you have much recollections of the of that show, Jeff? You you were not there, right? No, I was not there. Um, I've, I'm sure that, you know there were hundred thousand people there, but there's probably like five hundred thousand people that say that they were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I remember it coming up, but I don't remember it being something that really captured too much of. I guess it didn't partially because I think I was focused on the shows that I was going to see a couple weeks after that as part of the the end of spring tour in Nashville and Iowa City. So I think I was probably more focused on that and trying to finish up my semester at the time. But I think after the fact, after you know, after the show and realizing how many people were there, realized sort of like it was a you know a thing. Like holy smokes, hundred thousand people. Um, you know, I think that, one of the things that Gordon will talk about is, you know, the relative, um, how well it all, how well it all went, you know, and I think it's something that could only really happen in a band's that well in a band's hometown where the band respects the town, respects the people, the people that are at the show, respect the town, they respect their neighbors and they, mm-hmm. you know, they try to work through any issues up front. And of course there were some issues up front, um, which, you know, Gordon details, details in the book uh, that are kind of entertaining, actually. But, uh, but no, I just remember thinking like that, that is something that cannot be replicated. And I'm glad they haven't tried <laughs> to, to do it yeah. again. So. Yeah, 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 that was a good decision. Um, see, I, I'm a little, you know, I definitely remember that it was, you know, that it was going to be a thing, um, a capital T thing. Um, and maybe that was because I was a little bit closer, you know, because you were, I guess, in Wisconsin still at that yeah, point. Sure so you were a little more removed. You know, I mean, I, I knew folks, you know, friends that, that made, you know, that went down there. Um, and I, as you know, I think I had maybe reached, you know, an age where I was like, you know, that many people in the streets. It just doesn't sound like something that I'm really <laughs> sounds like fun to me. But in some ways, I did sort of like once they came back and were like, that was just crazy, you know, that I was like, ah, that would have been kind of neat to go to. Um, but yeah, that that spring '98 because obviously the band was in Europe uh, early in the spring, and then they 
they did the Panic in the Street show. They did the Myrtle Beach and then that short uh, run in May um, that I didn't see any shows uh, in the, you know, the first part of 1998 until the, the, the travel and light tour in the summer, um, which is really, I think at that point was the longest I'd ever gone without seeing a show. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't think anybody really knew how big it was going to be. We just knew that it was going to be a thing. So, um, like you mentioned, we, uh, you know, uh, we're going to talk to Gordon Lamb, who is, a who's a, a writer who, um, who wrote a book that uh, is, is out now um, called widespread panic in the streets of Athens, Georgia. And um, it, it was a, uh, it's a really nice, it's a really good read. And uh, it, it touches on uh, sort of the history of the music in the city of Athens and uh, you know, a little bit of the history of, of widespread panic and um, and then sort of some of the background about the politics and the things that it, you know how it took to get to to pull a pull an event like this off and then uh you know a little bit about the show itself so um uh hopefully you guys enjoy that conversation but um after we do that we're gonna play uh some music from the show um obviously they released uh on video i remember when it first came out it was a vhs uh, Panic in the Streets. The very first video release was on VHS, and um, came in a nice little box and had a bonus CD in in it. That's right. Yeah, so it came with the CD, like the audio of that show, as well as the uh, the live in the Georgia Theater. Right? Was that part of it from nineteen, like the nineteen ninety one? Um, or remember, was that was that from the DVD release? Maybe that came with the DVD. That was the DVD. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but yeah, the VHS was the the show, you know, the video of the show and then the audio of the show. And then when they, they released it on DVD, uh, you know, a couple of years later, it included also the, uh, the pan, the original widespread panic of the Georgia theater, uh, directed by Billy Bob Thornton, um, which is a fantastic, uh, video that was originally released on VHS, you know, back in the, you know, early mid nineties. Um, so what we did was we're going to play the music that wasn't released, uh, from panic in the streets. You know, they picked, I guess about, you know, an hour and a half of music, uh, for that live video and the CD. And there's, you know, another hour and a half of music from that show. So we're going to play that later today, uh, later in this episode as well. But, um, before we get full, full bore into, um, to widespread panic, uh, do you have a you have anything for our weekly Rex segment, Jeff? You know, you know, Harvey. Did I sneak this up on you? Were you not expecting that? I was really was prepared it? for the for the last one, and I was sort of prepared, but you haven't finished watching the show yet, and so I'm waiting for oh. you to finish it. Um, so why don't you go first? I'll think of something. Okay, so <laughs> um, you know, we are uh, just a reminder to everybody that you know we're we're part of the Osiris podcast network, which we're really excited to be. Uh, there's some fantastic podcasts on there. Osirispod.com. I've been exploring lots of different ones. Um, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about, uh, about the show I went to, uh, in Washington, DC with, uh, RJB, um, and, uh, the golden gate wingman show, which is fantastic that the interview that RJ did, um, with uh 
Jonathan from the Breakdown Podcast um, came out on the Breakdown Podcast a couple of weeks ago. So definitely check that out. But um, I, say, I say all of that because I'm going to recommend a podcast that's not on the Osiris Podcast Network. <laughs> so, so from now on, whenever I recommend a podcast outside of the network, I'm going to have to make some sort of side recommendation for something inside the podcast. But um, it is... Uh, it was it's called uh dirty john it uh okay we can talk about this okay okay so um it was uh, put out in part by the the los angeles times and wondery which is another podcast network and um it it, it, i think it came out you know it's been out for a while but i just i'd sort of like had it in my queue and just hadn't ever gotten around to, to listening to it and i had this i drove up to Pittsburgh and back, um, you know, two weeks ago. And so I had 10 hours in the car by myself and I was like, well, you know, let's, let's find something sort of bingeable to listen to, uh, to mix up with music. And, um, I got totally sucked into it. <laughs> um, so it is, uh, it's about this guy and I don't want to give it all away because I, I think you really should listen to it, but, um, it's about this guy who is sort of, a. I mean, so have you, have you listened to this? Yeah, Have you listened to the whole thing? Okay. So, I mean, I guess he's sort of like a grifter or, you know, I mean, he's just a kind of a scam artist that he, you know, he sort of takes advantage of women. I mean, is that a fair um, yes. description? And um, so, it, you know, they talk to some of the people that were affected by him and um, sort of tell the story about uh, the things that he did. And um, it, it was just gripping. I thought I really, uh, it was well done. Yeah, it is really good, and um, it uh, it's one of those one of those stories and one of those um, narratives that keeps coming along where there's so many breaking points. Like, there's so many points during the thing. It's like, what are these people thinking? What are these people thinking? What are these people thinking? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And of course, it's you know hindsight's twenty twenty, and outside observation makes it really easy, and you're not in the moment. But it's a pretty Pretty compelling story. It was actually on a Dateline NBC. They did a one-hour version of it on Dateline NBC too. Which, which oh, really? Like recently they did? Yeah, within the last no. couple months. Uh, but okay. it wasn't. It wasn't bad. It wasn't as good as 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 the full podcast. And there was a series of articles too on the on the, uh, in the LA Times. I think I actually yeah. I read the, I read the articles. I don't think I listened to the podcast. I read it. Okay. I yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah because i started after i re- after i listened to the podcast i started reading the articles and i and they're almost i mean they're not identical but they're they're really similar you know similar um you know framing of the story and uh but it, it, there's something about listening to it and i think they they did like a um after the run of the podcast uh, they did like a live show where they talked to some of the folks that were involved and Um, one of the questions was, you know, like why, why is that, why is podcasting such a great medium for a story like that? And, um, you know, and I think part of it is like, it's really intimate, you know, I mean, you're wherever you are, if you're, you know, walking your dog or you're driving in your car or whatever you're doing right now, where you're listening to us talk, you know, basically somebody's talking to you, you know, I mean, it's like you're hearing these people's voices and hearing their thoughts and emotions and feelings and it's really uh it's a it's a very um you know intimate uh medium so uh those types of stories i think really hit home especially when the characters are involved i think that was one of the things why serial 
you know, resonated so much because you're really just hearing, um, you know, the storyteller and then the characters, you know, speaking to you. So, um, it was, uh, I, I, it was really well done. So I highly recommend, uh, checking that out. And, um, it wasn't super long. It's like six, maybe six or eight parts maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I blew through it on my, on my drive, but, um, so, uh, you know, don't want to definitely osirispod.com, but there are other good podcasts out there as well. So, there you go. Um, and, and you covered me because your, your, okay. your modern thing was, or your recommendation was something that I've actually consumed as well. So, okay. Yay. All right. That was a win, win, win. Um, Okay, so uh, what we're going to do next is go to uh, our interview with uh, Gordon Lamb, uh, the author of the book Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia, um, uh, which is printed by the University of Georgia Press, and it's available right now. So uh, go ahead and order it or find it at your local bookstore. And um, after that, we'll come back and um, we'll toss it to the music, and then um, we'll talk a little bit about it on the other side. So. so yeah, without further ado, uh, our conversation with uh, Gordon Lamb. All right, we're joined now by Gordon Lamb, senior writer and columnist for The Flagpole in Athens, Georgia, and author of the new book, Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia. Gordon, thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. And congratulations on, on the book. I appreciate it. Everybody's been so kind, and the enthusiasm's been just through the roof. I've been... Uh, really taken aback by how excited everybody is about it. So the, the thing that, that I noticed just like high level about the book was, and I think maybe you touched on this in the, in the prologue, but you really sort of thread the needle between, you know, writing a history of the Athens music scene and, you know, a, a mm-hmm. biography of widespread panic and a historical sort of TikTok of the political process of getting this show on. But how, how are you mm-hmm. able to sort of, I mean, that was, that was the goal, right? Not to get sort of too deep in any of those, but, but sort of cover enough that people can, where they, all three sort of come together and meet. Yeah, well, the idea, the idea was that, um, you know, it was, the, the book was necessarily limited in scope. It was a, supposed to be a book specifically about this show, this show that happened in Athens, Georgia. The thing is, though, is that to fully understand the importance of this event, you, I had to, uh, you know, go back a ways and explain, or, or not really explain, but but kind of, you know, paint the picture of what the scene was like before this event, um, what Athens was like as a music city or as a town with a music scene before widespread panic even existed, um, and because there was so much government involvement in the show happening, I had to kind of, you know, thread the needle through the uh, through the governmental process also to kind of explain you know, why this show was actually more difficult to put on uh, when it happened than it would have been, say, 20 years earlier when Athens was under a different mayoral system. Hmm. Um, so kind of had to, you know, it, it, it necessarily, uh, in order to go three steps forward, I had to take two steps back. The, um, and I, def- I want to sort of start at the beginning, but, but did, did you get a sense like that you wouldn't have maybe gotten buy-in from the from the band, if this was like a, a full on biography of, of the band. Yeah, they, that's correct. They, they weren't interested in anything like that at all. So when I, um, 
so when I brought the idea to Widespread Panic, I was like, look, I'm writing this book, and I would really appreciate your participation in it um, because you have you have knowledge that I need, and um, it's not that I can't write the book without your participation, but um, it's going to be missing a lot of essential information, and essentially there would be no book at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really, I really needed their participation, and also I needed their introductions to people that I had not met yet, people that didn't know me, people that might have been apprehensive about speaking with me and um, uh, panic in the, the panic office, you know, kind of, um, they introduced me to a lot of people via email and telephone and uh, was, was like, you know, talk to this guy. He's, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He, he you know, he'll quote you accurately and all that kind of stuff. So uh, they, they were totally, um, willing to participate in a book about a specific event, but they were not interested in any type of uh, biography or anything like that. So I had to assure them that it wasn't going to be that. Yeah. I mean, why do you do, is that they're not ready for that or they just wasn't the time or, you know, well, they, you know, they were never explicit with, with the whys about mm-hmm. it, but I think that it's, a, I think it's, uh, you know, as for maybe perhaps for a couple of different reasons, this is purely me speculating, but sure. one, um, one, it would, it basically, when you're writing a, bi- a full on biography of, of a group of people, it's really a lot of work on their part. If they're going to be, you know, if they're going to participate because they have to really rack their brains, their memories and consult their notes mm-hmm. and widespread panic is a working entity. I mean, you know, they're always looking forward. They're always doing something else. They don't really have a lot of time to each go back to their respective homes and dig through their archives and all this and all this kind of stuff. And also, um, you know, maybe there's subjects they didn't want to talk about or revisit. Maybe mm-hmm. there was hard times in the band they didn't want to talk about that kind of stuff. You know, who knows? Mm-hmm. And um, but also, like I said, they're a working band. They're an ongoing entity. Their story's not done yet. You know, so you know, they maybe they felt that way about it. Yeah. No, I mean that's interesting. I mean, I hope that one day that will happen. Although I really did enjoy. I mean, this is, I think, maybe the deepest kind of dive that anybody's had to sort of get a sense for, even though it was this one moment, just to kind of get a sense for, um, you know, where the band was. And so I appreciated that for sure. Um, Thank or, you. Thank well, you very much. Let, let's start maybe just on the, you know, maybe we'll sort of touch on those three topics that I, that I lined out, but starting sort of in the sure. Ath- Athens scene. Um, yeah, I think most of the people listening are familiar with widespread panic as a band and maybe the history of the band, but can you maybe give us a, you know, give us the, the two minute or five minute, you know, pitch on, on the Athens history, you know, the music scene and where it started and how it grew and, and, and where it was at least at the point of, you know, April 17th, 1998. Well, let's go back. Well, we got, I mean, hell, we could go all the way back to the civil war, but uh, we're, we're not going to, um, <laughs> But Athens was always Athens because of the because of the university being located here. Athens was always a uh, a really popular stop for itinerant musicians and touring musicians and uh, minstrel shows and uh, you know carnivals and all that kind of stuff because we had a train depot and we had a a college and we had theaters and things here. So before before the advent of rock and roll or anything like that, I mean there was always entertainment in Athens. Um, traveling entertainment and things like that. Um, but for our purposes, let's just go back to the 60s. And um, there were, of course, you know, after the after Elvis Presley and after the Beatles and, and all that, there was, you know, teenagers picking up drums and guitars and stuff and forming, forming rock bands here like they were everywhere. Um, but as far as 
as far as the like local music scene went, there were singer songwriters and there was a few uh, bands. Most famously from here would be say the Jesters, uh, were probably the most famous rock and roll band before the 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 new music age. Um, and people knew them, but there was a lot of touring bands like you know Doug Clark and the Hot Nuts. Like fraternity parties were were a real big thing, mm. and so you'd have like Doug Clark and the Hot Nuts or you know, Wilson Pickett or whoever, you know, touring around and, and not playing the university, but playing, you know, a, a frat party down the street. And so that was a, that was a really big scene. The, um, I would, I would place the, the birth of the, of what would become the modern Athens music scene. I would place that pretty squarely on the, on the shoulders of the, um, the guys that opened the last resort. And that was, that so, was a music club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's a fancy restaurant. I mean, it underwent a massive renovation uh, back in the late '80s, early '90s, and now it's now it's a nice restaurant. But its history was that of a was that of a nightclub. Um, you know, uh, just kind of a freak scene place. You know, opened in '67, and um, that was, uh, you know, it, that's that's kind of where it, that's kind of where it started. And I mean, obviously, REM is a band. You know, that that made it pretty big. Would was that a um... A key point. Well, they did okay. Yeah, Ari did okay. <laughs> <laughs> there was a great. I forget what there was. There was some interview, and I don't know what where it was a video interview of, of Panic. It was either radio or in a movie, and they were like, you know, oh, Ath-, the interviewer was like, oh, you know, Athens is a big band, you know, big scene, all these bands, REM, and you know, do you guys hang out with them at all? And I think JB was like, well, no is a big word. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> But, uh, I mean, that, that was like, you know, as far as like national recognition, right? I mean, that was a big spot, like in the early 80s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Inter- international. I mean, R.E.M., R- um, they, they, whoo, their, their star rose very, very quickly. Mm. And, I mean, w- would you say that that sort of uh, colored, you know, the the opinion of the music, you know, the Athens music scene, at, you know, from, I guess, what, 82 to, you know, the late 90s? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely, and it and it and it colored the press's impression of Athens. Right. Um, it was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Already impressed a, a very large shadow. Yeah, and I mean, like rightly or wrongly, right? You know, it's like they're a very unique band, and it's not like a all. You know, it's not like the Seattle scene maybe in the in the '90s where you kind of got a whole genre come out. I mean, it wasn't like there were a bunch of bands that sounded like REM playing around Athens. Well, actually, there there were there were tons of them. They just never got famous. Um, but there was yeah, but there was lots of, there was lots of bands that sounded like REM or some variation of REM. And that's what's so funny is that until until the advent of REM, uh, all the bands really sounded different. And um, but then REM came along and is you know is kind of twofold. One, their influence, and two, their their popular, popularity with the with the press. Um, there was uh, this kind of like you know when you look back at the 80s and you read articles that talk about the quote-unquote Athens sound they're not talking about the b-52s and and unfortunately they're not talking about pylon either uh who was great band um they're talking about rem they're talking about this kind of you know birdsish uh you know southern gothic um uh, jangle pop mm-hmm. kind of music you know so yeah rem cast a, cast a really big shadow but when we think of the the old Athens sound that's generally the sound that that pops into people's minds and so that you know so that's what's so interesting about the widespread panic story 
is that widespread panic wasn't that way at all. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, they were a ba- they were a band that right out of the gate they were playing sets that were ninety five percent covers with maybe a maybe an original thrown in, uh, you know, in the middle or the very end or something, and um, which was that, that that was something in the Athens new music scene um, that you would never do. You'd mm-hmm. never you'd never play a whole set a whole set of covers. I mean, and so with widespread panic doing it was just kind of it was a much more kind of traditional troubadour kind of way of performing and building an audience. Um, so, and so in that respect, our wife for Panic is a much more traditional band than, than say Aria. I love you had a, you had a quote in there from Jimmy Ellison from the side effects about you wouldn't dare play like anybody else here. Cause you'd hate yourself in the morning um, talking about Athens, right. you know, and I think that really, you know, maybe leads up to that yeah. point. Right. Um, and I think also, you know, like you said about the, the shadow of REM, I, I would say, you know, when you would uh, mm-hmm. describe widespread panic to somebody in the, you know, early mid nineties uh, as a band from Athens, mm-hmm. like the, the immediate thought process was like, Oh, well they must sound like REM. Right. Um, and obviously that was certainly not the case. I'm sure I, well, I would be, I don't know. I don't know about people in the South necessarily doing this or, or even people in the United States, but I would guarantee you there was more than a few uh, say European tourists, they came into Athens and wanted to buy some local records because they were REM fans and mm. wound up with a with a widespread panic <laughs> album or two. Sure. Um, so uh, the and and I guess I mean, would you say that that this this event on April eighteenth, ninety eight, was um, widespread panic transitioning from you know that other band from Athens to you know, maybe the band from Athens at that point, or, or is that, is that too simple? Is that too simplistic of a look at, at the moment? I don't think, no, I don't, no, I don't think it's simplistic at all. I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's actually pretty on point. Um, because, because at that point, you know, I can't even remember. REM had not broken up yet, but they were, but they were close. They were, um, they were working on like their last couple of records and, um, there was uh, even a generation of fans coming up that, you know, for whom REM was not a band they listened to when they, when they were kids. And um, so, uh, no, I think that, I think that that's, I think that that's, uh, that that's pretty on point. I guess one of the things about, you know, take a look at the book and reading, you know, the sort of the recollections of this happening 20 years ago, it's hard to believe, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, is I guess two things really jump out about the show itself. One is, the relative peace and quiet that occurred during the show, as opposed to other sort of festivals of around that time in some of the, Oh, uh, no. So talk, maybe talk a little bit about that, but also just sort of how close was this show to not happening? Um, you know, there's the various, I mean, I've always heard urban legends about, about some of the things that, that, that came up. And then of course the mayor of Macon chimes in. So, I mean, so I guess those are the two things. Right talk about the, the the peace and quiet but then also just sort of like how close is this show um, how, how close is it to not happening you know i want to say i want to say i mean after after researching this book thoroughly and and talking to so many people and even and i was even here i was on the ground i was at the show that day and um and i remember uh all the controversy leading up to it and and all this stuff that um after and so for years, I always thought, man, the show almost didn't happen. It really didn't happen. That was always the kind of like the official thing of like this didn't happen, blah blah blah. And now after all the research I've done, I'm kind of of the opinion like 
it, it's it's both. It's almost like it's almost like Schrodinger's Schrodinger's festival. It's like it was close to happening and not close to happening. Um, <laughs> in, in that, I'm serious. It's so crazy because because the way Athens works is like Athens will Athens will argue back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and then finally shrug its shoulders and go, okay, yeah, we'll get along. We'll do this thing, and which is exactly kind of what happened here, even though it was so stressful because of the compressed timeline of the, you know, from the proposal, Sam Lanier brought it to the mayor in late January for a show that was supposed to happen in, um, in, uh, you know, April and official permits weren't signed for a long time. And it wound up being this thing, but honestly, for all the, for all the, controversy that surrounded it um i still kind of get this feeling that everybody involved eventually thought that it was going to happen anyway that they were eventually going to come to terms and figure out a way to make it happen um but people just like to argue you know <laughs> so i mean and there were some very real concerns on the part of the city too they had never done anything like this and they didn't quite know what was being proposed and so there was a lot of um there was a lot of trust like you know can we trust these guys uh that these people are who they say they are can we trust that they're going to guarantee the the money and put up the you know the um uh proper earnest money and secure the proper credit and so the city doesn't get placed on the hook and you know can we you know can we uh make sure that you know thousands of kids don't die in the street from you know for whatever reason you know so they had they had legitimate concerns but um and i i don't know it's one of those things where it, i guess it's just difficult to difficult to tell because we could like this conversation like i say it could go either way we could talk for hours about how it almost didn't happen and we could talk for hours the other way about how it could only have happened Sure. You know, would would this band? I mean, would any other band have been allowed to do this other than Widespread Panic? Uh, sure, I think so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it, the thing about it is, is, it had never been done before, and so it didn't. It's one of those things that didn't um, really occur to people to even ask. You know, and it, it was interesting too. I thought, like, uh, I guess you know, Art Jackson was a big sort of character in this in the. In the, uh, Very much so. in the Very make, much so. in the making it happen, right? And and it's easy to say Sam Lanier showed up in what February for a show two months later, but it like and it but it yeah. wasn't just like you know the mayor and the city council were like okay sure let's do it. It was like there was actual work, you know what I mean? Like they had to get a oh, lot yes. of stuff done, uh, you know, by the books, right? I mean there was no just like oh we'll figure it out kind of stuff. I mean they really uh there's a lot of you know red tape and bureaucracy that had to actually happen oh absolutely absolutely and that's what the, that's one thing that's so funny about the myth of the show is that is that in the in the um popular imagination of of fans and people that leave and live in Athens now and and everything it's just in the popular imagination there's, there's this idea that that um you know, widespread panic were just sauntering around town one day and said, Hey mayor, let's have a show. And she's like, cool. And they threw up a stage and had a party. And it's like, couldn't nothing could be further from the truth. Right. You know, this was, this was a lot of work and a ton of money. And, uh, you know, uh, so it was a big deal, but, but people still somehow have this idea that, um, that it was just this, you know, casual, casual thing. And, uh, you know. And I wonder how much of that is just a result of, <laughs> you know, the, the Internet had just sort of, you know, the, 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 the distribution of information wasn't quite as wide as it is today. You know, and so you just kind of got pe- bits and pieces and, you know. Uh, you no, know. You're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It was one of the it's, – it's, it's an event that happened right before 
you know, technology took over everything. Mm. And so there was, there was some available, there is still a measure of myth making about it. Yeah. The, um, Absolutely. The, the thing that, the, the thing that I love the most about the, um, the, you know, the sort of build up to, to making it, you know, the, the bureaucracy side of it happened was this, this interaction that, that Art Jackson had with, uh, Ann Shepard with Chick Piano, um, I guess yeah, she was, yeah. you know, can you tell a little bit of that story? Uh, and, and, uh, I can't remember what her role was. I can't remember. She said, oh, she said on the, um, Athens downtown development authority. Right. Uh, she was a member of the ADDA and, um, uh, you know, art was going around to, to the respective members of the ADDA, ADDA and pitching this idea to him. And he was a little, he was a little concerned because most of them tended to be older and a little more conservative, and a lot of them weren't really familiar with the band scene at all. And so he's having to uh, tell them this idea of, uh, of this, you know, this proposed event that is never, uh, the likes of which have never happened before, and he doesn't really know how big it's going to be, but could you all please come on board and support this? And um, so he went to Ann Shepard, and Ann... Uh, I, like, I don't know Ann personally, even though I have met her, I don't. I don't know her personally, and uh, apparently Anne didn't didn't like the mayor and would always like uh, you know oppose things that the that the mayor was proposing and blah blah blah. So Art was a little uh, trepidatious about um, because the mayor, this the mayor was supporting the mayor was supporting this, right? I mean, Gwendolyn was was, very, was very pushing much this. So. Yeah, um, Gwen, Gwen was a hundred percent behind it, mm-hmm. and so uh, Art was a little nervous about talking to, talking to Anne. But uh, then he went up to her, and he was just so pleasantly surprised. And she's like, oh, we love widespread panic. You know, they've been shopping here since day one. And, and uh, you know, we, we love them. We'll do anything. We think this is a wonderful idea. So it's great. You know, we'll, we, sh- we ship strings to them on the road and all that. And so, yeah, so that's really nice. Being nice to people pays off sometimes, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, because the guys in the band, they, this was their home. They lived here, you know. Um, and they, you know, they're just neighborly, neighborly, nice guys. Going along with that, yeah. like like Jeff mentioned, with you know that there was this sort of thing with Macon maybe coming in and sort of being the mm-hmm. you know, offering to put this on, and maybe that was like the last little thing that pushed this over the edge to, to actually making it happen. But but uh, do you think would would the band have even? I mean, you know, would they have done it in Macon? I mean, it seemed like this was a hometown thing, and this is the only place that could really happen. And that's that's exactly right. Um, the, the band never seriously considered taking it to Macon. Um, there is an interview uh, done on the rooftop uh, on a rooftop down down away from the from the forty watt that was shot the day of the Panic and Street show, where it's uh, Kitty Snyder interviewing Dave Schools, and um, he says to her, he's like, you know, we had a deadline on this. The show almost went to Macon, but um, even Dave told me it's like that it was never seriously con- considered uh, going to Macon, you know, because they the whole idea was to do something cool in Athens, their hometown. Um, but they were very thankful that Macon came in with that offer, but you're absolutely right. That was the, that was the final prod to get everybody to work together. Yeah. You kind of mentioned that you were at the show and, um, we talked to Jonathan Spencer a couple weeks ago about some unrelated topic, but it came up and he shared a little bit about his experience at the show. Can you, can you so can you give us kind of idea, sort of a, a, a brief boots on the ground, um, feeling of what it was like being in the crowd that day um, in it, it was well it was i was working at work street records at the time and uh let's see i got and we were we were pretty bit we were pretty busy that day i mean people were coming in buying bootlegs and, and things like that but it wasn't i honestly don't remember 
us as a retail establishment being completely overwhelmed. We had a little bit of an advantage because we sold records and as music fans in town. So, mm-hmm. so that was a little bit of an advantage we had. So we did some business, but I got off work, I think probably like five or six o'clock. And, uh, and I just started slowly making my way down towards the, towards the stage. And I didn't get any farther, closer to the stage than a block away. I, I got stuck at, at the whole street intersection right there in front of the Morton theater and uh, all that. And so that's about as close as I got. And then, and eventually uh, I, it was just so crowded that I uh, backed up and went into the church parking lot and kind of like uh, found a space next to an electrical box and, you know, sat down and put my back up against it. And that was going to be like where I stayed. <laughs> and, um, and so that's, that's what I did. I just sat there. I literally sat down in a parking lot with my back up against the electrical box and just, you know, talked to people from out of town and, and hung out and, uh, you know, just drank beer in the church parking lot and listened to widespread panic. Yeah. What do you think so, about, I mean, uh, Jeff touched on this before about the, you know, sort of the public safety aspect of this. I mean, obviously I, that was mm-hmm. more people than would probably ever fit in a space, you know, that size. Um, and they'd never, you know, tried to support something like that. But obviously, you know, I, I kind of looked at it. I mean, I wasn't there, but I, 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 I suspect that the police sort of took a New Orleans PD at Mardi Gras approach of like, as long as nobody is in, you know, medical distress, you know, that, you know, we're mm-hmm. going to kind of make sure that this is, you know, just everybody's safe. We're not going to like pick people off for, you know, for smoking a joint or something. That was, that was, that was not their original plan, but that's what the plan became. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wound, it wound up being that plan. Absolutely. Yeah. They, they adjusted their policing in a, in a pretty severe way. Um, to to uh, from I mean doing like I mean you said it exactly exactly that where where public safety was was paramount and um, and they wound up you know they wound up doing a good job I mean there was there is you know there were there were arrests that night and there were citations given that night and there was a few medical emergencies but if you think about if you think if you, you know if you think about there being a hundred thousand people at this show. Um, and then you think that at the time, uh, you know, the population of Athens wasn't even 100,000 people yet. <laughs> and, and so any, you know, you think about a town like Athens, any, on any given night, there's going to be a handful of medical emergencies. There's going to be a handful of overdoses. There's going to be, you know, a handful mm-hmm. of certain amounts of, of crime. And to think that this, this non-native population gathered in an exceedingly condensed area, um, didn't have at least one major tragedy happen. It's a it's a miracle. Hmm. It really is. It, re- it really you does. Know? It seems like you know, sort of everybody did their part, right? You know, I mean, like the police didn't push too it's, hard, it and, the, and the kids were, you know, but, everybody that was there, you know, played right. along, and right. I mean, it, it's like everybody, whether they knew it or not, they everybody kind of worked together to create the statistical improbability, mm-hmm. um, and did a and did a you know a really good job. Um, but at the end of the at the end of the event, the the you know some police that worked on the ground were were happy that you know I, I mean they were all happy that no tragedy tragedy occurred. But there was also a lot of people in the police force that were severely demoralized um, because they felt very disrespected by you know kids you know urinating on the police station right mm. in front of them stuff yeah. like that and you know and and it's like one of those things. And uh, the Athens Clark County Police Force or Police Department. 
they're not really a head when like this a head cracking um, police force. They're very used to policing college kids and mm-hmm. and all that. They're not a they they um, they don't tend to go out looking for people to bust for things. But so they um, you, you know so it's it's kind of no wonder they are, are kind of like oh man come on we you know PNR building what yeah. are you doing right. so Gordon you kind of touched on something there and that I want to see if you can answer is just. You know, what did, sure. during, throughout this whole process and then leading up to the show and then the show itself and then the aftermath of it, you know, what was, did, was there a widespread change in how the band was viewed by Athens itself? Um, not just the people within the mayor's office and, the, and, and public safety, but also just the people that lived in the town. Um, you know, talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because like, I'll give you, I'll use my, I'll use myself as a perfect example. Um, I moved to Athens in 1989, and uh, Whitefred was still playing the Uptown Lounge in those days. And so I saw him a couple of times at the Uptown Lounge, just because I was, you know, I was new to town, and I was a, you know, I was a big fan of the Athens music scene, the bands that I knew. But you know, I came to town, I was, I went out trying to listen to bands that I didn't really know, and I had seen Whitefred Panic the year before, or earlier, or earlier that year. I moved here in the fall of '89. But I'd seen them for the first time in the spring of 89 at the Athens Music Festival out, out at the uh, old Athens Fairgrounds. And, um, but anyway, so I saw them a couple of times at the, at the Uptown Lounge, and then they you know, graduated at the Georgia Theater. But the thing about Widespread Panic is that as they, even as they got bigger and bigger and bigger out in the world, here in Athens, they were always like these hometown dudes. Mm. You know, They were the guys that like played Monday nights or Wednesday nights at the, at the Uptown Lounge. They were the guys that played, you know, twice a month at the Georgia theater. And, um, they were just always this, they were like this supremely local band. And so, um, so when this show happened, I remember, I remember the lead up to it. And I remember thinking like, God, there's no way this thing is going to be that as big as everybody's worried about. It's just going to be a little street party. It's going to be, you know, whatever. I had no, no idea. And keep in mind, I was among the people that should have been relatively well informed. I mean, I was in the music scene. I worked at the local record store. I was not, you know, I wasn't 50 years old and, and living out on the countryside. I was, you know, I was a young person, really involved in things. And it blew my mind. Mm. And I couldn't, it was just, I was just blown away by it. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think the perce- I think the perception of the band changed a lot of people's minds, or, or, or a lot of people's perception of the band was changed. Yeah, absolutely. And and that sort of you know, I think you talk about the the fact that this you know would you, now that we're you know we're on the twentieth anniversary of this concert happening and you know that yeah. that, that would, this was a moment in time you know that you couldn't mm-hmm. be recreated you know if they wanted to go back and do a 25th anniversary of panic in the streets um, that you That's know right. the band was like you know this that was sort of the perfect <laughs> we got away with it right you know and and let's just leave it and and have it be a happy memory that's right that's right and also um i mean uh i had this conversation with dave schools not only not only have times changed and uh, and all that, and we should be very thankful that this just happened that they got away with it, but also audiences have changed. Mm-hmm. And the um, I don't know, I, you know, I can't. We we had this conversation, um, schools and I, and, and we were both saying, you know, there's no way that you would pull off a major 
festival type um, happening now mm-hmm. with so few amenities, you know, with three hot dog carts <laughs> or, uh, you know, 12 porta potties. I mean, you just wouldn't do it. Audiences wouldn't demand it. I no. mean, I mean, wouldn't put up with it. I mean, um, you look at even the audiences that go to, uh, you know, relatively, relatively chill events like, say, Bonnaroo or something like that, you know. They're not going to be happy drinking Coca Cola and drinking draft beer and eating hot dogs all weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, look at the look at the amenities that are offered to festival goers and people the things that people are used to and and um, all that. You know, extra cell relay, relay towers, water refilling stations, all of this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I don't know that you'd be able to attract an audience where say where the where the primary. Um, entertainment before showtime is sitting in a parking lot and drinking liquor. I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that that would occur. Not that there's not people like that out there. It's just that there's an entire generation that's grown up um, thinking of large events in a, di- in a different way. What, um, one of the things that struck me, because we, you know, on this podcast we do, you know, sort of look back on um, this moment in time and doing a lot of anniversary mm-hmm. type things. And we just spent, a, you know, a couple of weeks doing a retrospective on this 10 night Paris run that they did in the Mar- in March of 1998, a month before this happened. And like, yeah. that, that was amazing to think that these guys were, you know, on the other side of the, well, not really on the other side of the world, but on a different continent. Um, while all mm-hmm. of these plans are happening and they're, you know, playing to 150 Americans in a club in Paris for two weeks straight. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I know it's pretty, it's, it's amazing. And there was, you know, there was stuff about like people were sending drugs home from, from Amsterdam that were on tour. And then that, that caused some concern to the police people. Yeah. That, I think, I think that story is, I think that story is just so funny. I just <laughs> love it. I mean, it's, a, it's like, it's the perfect, you know, it's the, it's, it's, it's a, that's one of those stories I ran across and um, it, it was just hidden. It was this just hidden story in a, in a file folder full of um, just different things from that time that either it was either Jeff Montgomery or Art Jackson that had, um, that had gotten me. They, they each provided me with huge files from their personal archives, which were very helpful. I just can't remember which one of these, <clears throat> which one of them I got this story from, but when I was going through all these papers, there was a, I can only call it a communique because the way it's cropped and photocopied, I can't tell if it was an email or if it was a memo that went out. But, um, yeah, there was this, uh, there was this guy and it was, I think the package originally went to North Carolina or or wherever the closest customs office from overseas was. And, um, yeah, there was this guy that had mailed himself uh, just a box full of hash from Amsterdam Customs agents intercepted it and delivered it to Atlanta, and then Atlanta delivered it to the Athens Court County Police, and they made a controlled delivery and arrested the guy and everything. And uh, what he says to him is, you know, it's so it's so funny because you can totally imagine this guy saying like saying these words, but then you can also imagine like a very stern, you know, um, policeman typing up typing up these notes because because the actual language of the communique is, is so is so matter of fact and says you know subject advised that he had uh, uh, been at widespread panic shows in Paris and that thousands of people thousands of people were coming from France and they were and they're all mailing drugs and it's like oh come on 
you know, and it's like that, that's what the that's the point I make in the book. Where it's like talk about striking fear into the the heart of a small town police department. It's like thousands of French people and they're all mailing drugs. You know, I mean it's it's I mean it's like a Mel Brooks movie. It's crazy. Um, one of the one of the things that uh, that I certainly remember from you know the the beginning days of the internet as this show was was preparing to happen was the wedding right mm-hmm. and that was um, yeah and, and maybe didn't play as big a part I mean it sort of seems like maybe it wasn't as big a a roadblock as it was presented back then but um, that was some some pretty like that was really interesting stuff like sort of southern you know uh, uh, culture <laughs> you know and like the different the different pieces and and roles being played and that. And that whole story. Oh yeah, I mean that that whole story. Uh, you know, of of any wedding, of any wedding in Athens to happen on the same street on the same day as this historic, you know, concert event would be. You know, this historic wedding. That's such an Athens thing. It's like it's just unbelievable. You know, um, because the, the family of the bride and the family of the groom each have these, you know, enormously long roots uh, in in Athens. And um, and with the University of Georgia, and uh, and with the local newspaper industry, and um, it was just crazy how everything just wound up being all. I mean, it was. I don't even know how else to say it, but it was just such an Athens type of thing. Like mm-hmm. these these historic, you know, all this history happening on the same block on the same day at the same time. Right. You know. Um. And, and I guess the band. So the band ended up moving the, sh- the start time up to. Yeah, yeah. They moved. They moved in an hour, oh. and uh, and the guests were accommodated actually by city buses huh. um, that delivered that delivered them to the church, and then and then took them back to their cars. They had parked off site, and um, yeah. So I mean, that's a you know that's another thing. It it that so happens where it's like this you know this gigantic. Tempest in a teapot um, that is actually a very, very big deal and important for all concerned, but actually could wind up being, you know, uh, solved relatively easily. So, and, yeah, uh, and it was solved relatively easily. And it was just basically they, they wanted to make sure they could get in and get out. And, you know, they, they weren't upset with the fact that's that right. the event was happening. It was just they wanted, you know, the logistics of, the, of their wedding to, to you uh, that's, know. That's, absolute, that's absolutely right. And the... Um, you know, the mother of the bride is the one that, that always got all the backlash and everything, and, and her, name, her name's Oba Dupree. And, um, but she's just absolutely lovely. She, you won't meet a friendlier person. Mm-hmm. Um, she's, a southern, she's as southern as the day is long, and she's friendly and lovely. And just, uh, just I find her in, incredibly easy to get along with. And, you know, we, jack, we joke and, and laugh and everything. And she has nothing but, um, but fond memories of that day. And she thinks widespread panic just hung the man and she thinks they're, they were great. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, she thought that she thought the fans were wonderful. Like when the bride and groom exited the church, some fans on the street saw them and the whole street erupted in applause. And, you know, so it was a, it was a very special day for them. Let's get her on the show, Harvey. I, I, bet, bet, she can be, I bet she knows <laughs> spring 96, like the back of her hand. I, I bet she has an amazing accent would be my guess. <laughs> Um, oh, oh, who, who uh, Mr. Free? Yes. Absolutely, she does. <laughs> oh, no, go oh, absolutely, she does. Uh, absolutely, 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 she does. Yeah. Gordon, one of the things about this book that's exciting for me is the fact that it's uh, published by the University of Georgia Press. Um, 
And that's that exciting a, for me too. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure much more exciting for you, I'm sure. Um, but the fact that an academic press took on this book, but also the fact that it's you know it's been situated within this music of the American South series, and I love how it's mm-hmm. the third book in the series. The first book's about the B-52s. The second book is about Whispering mm-hmm. Billy Anderson. Widespread mm-hmm. Panic is the third book. So Panic sort of fits in sort sort of between those two, you know, in some sliding scale. Oh, very, uh, very much. But yeah. one, one of the things that, you know, I guess when I saw that this book was coming out and then also that it's been in this series is, you know, we talk a lot about Panic as a band from Athens, Georgia, a band, a jam mm-hmm. band, which, of course, is a label mm-hmm. which can be said with derision sometimes. Um, but sure, of course. At their core, I mean, they really are a Southern band. So can you talk about, you know, what that means to you, you know, um, in terms of how it's situated within the series, but also just Panic as a Southern band and not necessarily with any other labels other than that? Well, as far as the, as far as the series goes, I wasn't aware that there was a series. And I didn't, when I contracted to do this book, when I signed the contract to do this book, I didn't realize that it was going to be part of the series. I'm honored that it is. Very much so. Um, but I didn't even know that Whisper and Bill Anderson book existed. And so that was very exciting to me. The other one, the Beef and Cheese book, is the, the Party Out of Bounds book. And um, and I'd read that years ago. And uh, it's under the umbrella of the University of Georgia Press now because they um, they got the license for it. Um, it was originally published it was originally published years ago by uh, like Macmillan or some, some major uh, publishing house. But, um, but the University of Georgia acquired it. And which is a wonderful title for them to have, but um, but yeah, I didn't even know the series existed uh, until until I was part of it, and so that was that was um, that was nice. And I cannot remember the other part of your question. I'm I just sorry. Said, you know, situating Panic within the context of you know music of the American South. You know, what does that mean to you mm-hmm. uh, as, as somebody who's researched? Well, well, let me think. I, you know, Panic's one of those bands that. Um, Okay, let's go back to the REM thing. Is that the REM's popular image for many years was this kind of uh, mysterious, you know, kind of kudzu cloaked, uh, poetic, you know, uh, band that was photographed in half shadows and and just stuff like that. And uh, it adds this kind of like mystery and southern uh, gothic kind of thing. With Panic for for you know. You, what you saw is what you got, you know, when, when JB's up there singing Dear Mr. Fantasy, it's like, this is what it is. There's, this is the, this is the song we know and love and, and, uh, we're, we're going to play it on stage and you're going to enjoy it. And, and, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. Um, they started getting more towards that, that darkness, uh, I'd say with like the everyday record and, um, which I still think is like their you know, heaviest, moodiest record they, they ever did. And, um, but as far as, you know, I don't know. I think they kind of embrace that, that Southern thing where it's like, um, you know, they greet you, they greet you with open arms and open hands. Like there's nothing hidden about them. They're just, there's just these good, good, solid dudes, you know, which, um, which is a very Southern, Southern thing to be, you know, the real, real cash on the barrel head kind of, kind of guys, you know, which sees what you get. It's it's pretty cool that that seems to sort of be a, a running theme through this, you know, with with their interactions with people from the city and um, you know the government and and other people involved. Um, 
which is really cool, mm-hmm. you know. But one of one of the moments that sort of feeds off that too is their interaction with One Arm Steve, <laughs> uh, which mm-hmm. I thought was an awesome yeah. story. Like that, that you know, obviously they they debuted that song at the show, but that they like basically like sat down because you know sort of a true story, right, about a real guy, and they like sit down with him before the show to like kind of get his blessing before they play it. Well, that's a, that's the story that Steve told me. Um, I mean, I knew I knew the story of the song and I knew the song, but I had not heard it from Steve himself. And uh, he and so he related that entire story to me. And I and I didn't know that they took him aside um, to uh, to to let him know that they were going to debut it and everything. Um, but he told me that story, which I just think is just think is so cool, you know. And that's the kind of guys they are. It's like they're not they're not going to get on stage and like say, hey, there's a song we wrote about that dude down there, and we hope it makes him super nervous because he doesn't know anything about it. <laughs> You know, they're not, <laughs> they're not those dudes, you know? So, yeah. Well, well, so, so that was just, you know, kind of a neat thing. Yeah. Right. And and so, like, uh, speaking of that, that's like the the thing that's always stuck out to me about this show is, you know, there's such buildup. It was this big sort of homecoming free, you know, big festival thing. And, like, for the most part, I mean, I personally think it's, like, one of their better sh- played shows but if you look at you know the set list is pretty straightforward as far as like you know it's almost kind of a greatest hits type show except for like they debut three songs and i mean that always seemed to be like such a like a random thing to happen like you wouldn't expect that in a in an event like that did did schools say anything about that or did you get any sort of sense for what the thought process was behind that no he no he didn't he didn't um he didn't shed any light on that on that at all, and uh, and neither did JB. And the only thing I can think of is that they, um, you know, were just trying to uh, just do the, do their thing, like play it like it was a, a show. And they, you know, they, um, you know, and, and did their did their thing of like not playing not playing a song, you know more than more than once every three days and, and things like that and i can i you know i really don't know what their i really don't know what their thought processes were on that um i imagine they were excited to do three debuts as you know i mean i'm sure that that was purposeful mm-hmm. that we're going to debut these songs at our hometown show in athens at this event yeah. i'm sure that the the you know doing one is is one thing but to do three um that was purposeful right um but what but what purpose was, I don't know. Um, well, we certainly appreciate you taking all this time to be with us. Um, I've got one more question. And, um, sure. Would, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, how, um, you know, panic has changed, you know, from before and, and after this event and um, how they were, you know, perceived both internally and externally of Athens, but what about the, you know, what about the city of Athens? I mean, they had never done anything like on this scale, you know, probably before mm-hmm. this moment. Um, right. And they felt pretty good, right? I mean, they pulled it off uh, just like everybody kind of felt pretty good. I would think in the afterglow, but what, um, mm-hmm. you know, in long, sort of looking long-term, you know, over the last 20 years, um, do you think this mm-hmm. has had an impact on the things that have happened in that city over that time? Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, you know, we have this annual festival here called Athfest, which is, uh, uh, a celebration of not only Athens bands, but also, also Georgia bands. And, um, so we have, you know, bands from all over Georgia, um, 
come and come and play Athens during this during this time. You know, there's a big outdoor stage right there where the Panic in the Street stage was, right there at the at the end of Washington Street. And um, you know, Athens had been founded only a year earlier, and their stage was all the way, their stage for that event was all the way down at the other end of the street by the you know the Classic Center. And um, you know, after after Panic after Panic in the Streets happened. Um, the idea of having a stage down there at, at the end of Washington Street for uh, you know for festivals or large concerts or whatever that just became a you know the kind of default thinking like oh well that's where the state that's where states downtown goes <laughs> is there and nobody had thought about that before <laughs> you know it had never it had never been done before and of course Atfest now has this large main stage down there the same spot um, the uh, the concept of what is possible uh, changed. Um, I don't think anybody will attempt, uh, nor do I think it would be approved, um, but I don't think anybody will attempt to do something this big again. Um, but it showed, but it showed that it can be done. And so the fact that this, the fact that this happened, uh, means that, you know, smaller events can quite easily be accommodated, you know, but it does take money also. I mean, I mean, panic had to put up a lot of, a lot of earnest money and, um, you know, then they of course paid for all their own staging and trucking and lights and all that kind of stuff. So it was very it's a, it was very expensive to do, but it can be done. Well, and I mean, I, I would have to think too. I mean, you know, it's just like it was a moment in time, and it was a time when like you know record labels were still a thing, and there were you know there was budgets mm-hmm. for promoting new albums, right? And this was their first new right. you know their first live album, and um, they were obviously a big touring band, and so they had uh-huh. the, the ability to kind of pull something like that off. And um, what, that was actually the, sure. one, the one other thing that I, I want to I'm going to cheat because I said I had one more question. But I got one more. Um, what, what oh, about? No, we'll talk about it. I'll talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what about like you know, like uh, I wrote down a note of like live records versus like live records, like all caps live records, um, and like sure, you know the sure. difference between it being sort of a way to you know, uh, fulfill a contract or whatever. It's like, oh, let's just put this together and it's really just, you know, whatever versus mm-hmm. like a, you know, a real sort of, you know, artistic, you know, piece of thing. You know, uh, Jeff's talked about, mm-hmm. Jeff, what are your three, like, you know, live records, Live Dead, uh, Fillmore East and Life Views Get Away. Um, <laughs> what, you know, so like, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what that meant? Just the the celebration of this record and, but how sort of an important moment that was, because we just sort of celebrated the anniversary of that release, obviously, you know, from uh, a couple right. of weeks ago. Yeah. Because what I had asked school, because, because of the time I, you know, I, uh, you know, widespread panic was on, was on a really big and long creative streak. And you know, that they had songs that they had not recorded yet. Mm-hmm. And so one of my questions at schools was like, well, why do a live album now? Like, you know, why? Maybe he was, and that too was kind of like, you know, that it was, that it was time, mm-hmm. you know, it was time to, time to do it. And, uh, they were happy to do it. And they, uh, you know, um, you know, and he talked about some of his, some of his favorite live records, uh, you know, over, over history and, you know, waiting, waiting for Columbus and, uh, you know, live, live Fillmore and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I don't know, um, like me, myself on a, on a, on a personal level, there's very few live albums that I'm, that I'm really enamored of. And most of them tend to be albums that were assembled from multiple different shows. Um, and, uh, so, which which is interesting because I think that that's I think that speaks also to what one thing Dave School said about 
Capri being a manufacturing place. And sometimes I think that I really do think that you can have a live album that is assembled from say two or three different shows and all, and kind of patched together. And you wind up having, you want the listener winds up having an experience of a thing that never actually existed. Right. You know, which, which is really, which is a very psychologically interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially since they're, since they're the ones who are, you know, assembling it, right. It's like, you know, you could have done this <laughs> in real life, but you decided to do it after the fact. Right. Well, and of course there's reasons for, you know, they, mm-hmm. they, they like the performance for, of one song from this show better than the other one. And they think that it, it showcases the individual songs better. Right. But what the listener is experiencing is something wholly created from the, you know, from the ether. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just, it, the, the actual experience never, uh, it only exists from hearing this kind of assembled, assembled album. And like I was saying, it's like, um, some of my favorite live records of all time were, were done that way. So I don't, so I don't have any, uh, any objection to that. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, I think that's a, a fine artistic, um, statement to make. And if I if I'm really, you know, jonesing to hear a particular show all the way through exactly as it was, then I'll try to find a bootleg of, of that particular show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think, like I said, it, it's really exciting that um, you were able to write this book that you had a contract with a, a with a press to do it, um, which is rare in these day in this day and age. I know, but I think you know, particularly, you know, we talk a lot about. It always feels somewhat silly talking about the stuff we talk about in this podcast because for us you know widespread panic is the band that we went and saw a bunch of times a long time ago and but so much of what we're talking about is in the past actually everything we're talking about is in the past <laughs> sorry sure. everything we right. talk about is in the past but it's it's to me a book like this lends a lot of credence to what we talk about to the band itself but also to, mm-hmm. to events and to concerts and to things like this because a lot of times they're so fleeting and we don't really you know we hear about Woodstock we hear about Watkins Glen obviously we hear about shows that are memorialized because of live albums and other things but right. like this this was a, a one time and it's thankfully it sounds like the only time that this is going to happen with widespread panic in Athens, Georgia. And I just think it's really cool that an event like this for a band that we love so much has entered that in some ways has entered that pantheon. And I think your book actually, you know, puts it there. So thank you for that. Um, Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. That's incredible. But but also I think it's, you know, it's the first time that something that panic has been, I think talked about and thought about in this way. And I think it's something that I hope the band really appreciates you for, 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 for what you've done too. Uh, I don't mean this to be the portion of the interview where you heap praise on the author, but, but, it, but, it, but I think it's important for all of us to understand that is that books like this don't get written about bands like widespread panic, you know, and at least to date. And so, that, and so that's why this, I think this is really cool. It was interesting. Your comments about the band not being interested in a bio um mm-hmm. and i think that that really plays into who they are and one of the reasons why we like them so much too um is that it this to them this is this is worthy but maybe them as a unit are you know not particularly quite ready for that yet because like you said they're still gigging they're still playing so sure yeah well uh, the, the the panic guys are, are interesting because they're you know they're 
more than willing to talk about music and records and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to talking about themselves, they, they're not, it's not exactly like they're self-effacing, but they're not these, they're not these, uh, in your face, like unbelievable, you know, self promoters and stuff. There's, they're, you know, they're just these, <laughs> there's, there's these just nice guys, you know, and they would much rather, you know, uh, I, I think Dave schools would, would much rather sit down and talk about your record collection than talk about what makes him such an awesome dude, you know? So, yeah. All right. So, uh, Gordon Lamb, the book is widespread panic in the streets of Athens, Georgia. It is available wherever you get your books, right? Amazon. Uh, is there, there's a Kindle version. Um, That's, there's a, there's a Kindle version. You can buy it on Amazon. I would, I would encourage everybody to, go to their uh, local bookstore if they have one uh, that they that they like or even know of and and if they don't have it in stock order order it from them yeah um, absolutely. but if you know but if Amazon's your only option then absolutely order it you know get it I mean definitely get it and enjoy <laughs> it and read it um, but <laughs> but, uh, but if you have a but if you have a local bookstore that you that you enjoy and that is that is doing good things in your neighborhood or, or in your city uh, I would encourage you to go there first well and uh, indiebound.org that's a thing that I've just learned mm-hmm. about is actually like an online community of local bookstores. So that's one way to do it. That's if you right. don't, if you don't actually leave the house, you can do it online uh, and, you know, and support a local bookseller. Um, last thing, just as I look at the, the entry on the, on the website, um, who, who did the cover art for the, for the book? Jeff Wood, Jeff Wood. Um, he's done a lot of panic posters and he's from Athens and, um, He's, uh, he, he, his studio is Zen Mystic Studios and, um, he's done, he's done just tons of panic posters and he came on board to do the University of Georgia Press asked him to, uh, if he was interested in doing the cover art and he was like, yes, I am. It's pretty pretty fantastic. Are you going to do posters of the, of the cover art for the book? Jeff is, Jeff's doing them. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. You can get a poster of the cover art for the book. Um, like I said, his studio is Zen Mystic Studios. I believe that's also the, the website. But if you look up Zen Mystic Studios and Jeff Wood together, you'll be able to find his website. And he's also on Instagram. And, um, yeah, he's uh, but he's making posters, and he will be selling them online also. Awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, um, yeah, great. Well, everybody go out and buy the book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was uh it was, yeah, it was a great read. So Gordon, really, truly appreciate you spending the time uh, to talk to us about this. Absolutely. Uh, I, I thank you for, thanks for getting in touch with me and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Appreciate it.
Black getting a little warmed up there. The Black King song, Danny and Eric, it's called Henry Parsons.
man knows his name Or his reputation They all came to see him buried down in the ground
Now, if you people keep working on that song, it might grow up to be something someday. Oh, 
We're back.
electric lights Not against a shopping cart
Mom's holding sister 
selections from the concert on April 18th, 1998 from Athens, Georgia, um, the, the massive 100,000 person free show. Um, we are playing songs that weren't on the official release. And so we started off with the first set, Diner into Walkin', and then Henry Parsons, the first ever all-time low, one of, first, one of three uh, first-time plays at this, at this show. Um, the Takeout, and then skipped over the Fort song because it's on the official release, and then Blackout Blues. And then uh, for the second set, we kick things off with the very first version of One Arm Steve, and then uh, skip over Chili Water, and you've got uh, Greta, the debut of Christmas Katie into Radio Child, and then uh, Arlene into Papa's Home, into Drums into Papa's Home. Um, I, I guess I've listened to this before. I mean, I certainly, I'm sure that I had. But um, you know, a few weeks ago, sort of in anticipation of this, uh, I threw on like the video, which I had watched, you know, a, a hundred times, um, but hadn't watched in a while, and was struck by like how much the band is just sort of on point the whole time. I mean, there's just it's just. Um, so good. And so then I guess when I went back to listen to the stuff that wasn't included in the release, I was like, well, this stuff is probably not, um, you know, as good, but I mean, it really almost is. I mean, the, um, I mean the Henry Parsons I thought was really fantastic. Um, the Greta Katie radio child was really good. Um, I mean, what's funny is I can remember, um, I mean, this is like, you know, the beginning of the internet, not really, but like a, a few weeks after the show, I can remember that like, cause it was a big deal that they p- debuted these three songs. Right. I and mean, nobody had ever heard these songs before. And, um, there was no such thing as panic stream. And, um, I guess there was some tapers there. Um, you know, so there were dats maybe being shared, but, uh, I can, I remember that like somebody posted like MP3s of, all time low, one arm Steve and Christmas Katie, like, you know, 32 K, you know, MP3s. I mean, literally sounded like garbage because you couldn't, (laughs) you couldn't transfer like large, you know, host large files on the internet in 1998, but, um, somebody did. And I can remember downloading them and listening to them and, you know, listening to them on like these scratchy, you know, gateway 2000 speakers, um, you know, playing this low, low resolution MP3, um, and maybe that was part of my, uh, you know, my recollection of the, that show, the rest of that show not being very good because it just didn't sound very good. But um, the, the, they were all pretty well formed. You know what I mean? Like there's a couple different spots where things sounded a little bit different than how those songs ended up sounding. But um, they were not, um, you know, loosey goosey uh interpretations and I, I really i especially thought like the christmas katie um and maybe this is something that we could do some research on but you know it seemed like i guess once the once the album came out the till the medicine takes album um that the sort of like companion jam for christmas katie got established you know and maybe that was a result of the dirty dozen being a guest on the studio version um but that the jam here was really quite different and very good, you know, but quite different than the jam that, that essentially became the, the ending part of Christmas, Katie. Uh, it was a little more, um, 
don't know, you know, wasn't quite as organized, a little more psychedelic, which I thought was cool. Um, so I really enjoyed getting back. I mean, it really just, I don't know. I mean, I, I hesitate to say this is like peak panic, but I mean, it, I feel like it was a band just absolutely firing on all cylinders. Well, I think, you know, playing three songs for the first time in front of such a massive crowd, even if it is in your hometown, is a pretty huge risk. So it's a good thing that they did practice. It wasn't like getting up on stage and stumbling through a first time played in the middle of falls or in some random Midwestern town. So, um, so I think in that regard, it's pretty impressive that they did that. I think yeah. also for a big show like this, which isn't as part of a tour, you don't have to worry about, you know, show songs you played in the last three shows or whatever so you just you, you play what the people want to hear so you play your you play your hits and then there's sometimes there's just nothing wrong with that yeah. um, and then play your hits really really well i mean this is a great the diner into walking that we played tonight's fantastic uh the arlene uh, papa's drums papa's is about as classic panic as, as, as you can get yeah. um so i think in, in that regard too it's like everybody i mean being in a crowd of 100,000 people literally is one of the last things I would probably ever want to do. <laughs> it's just, cause I, it just, I don't know. Cause there's no, there's really nowhere. Like I see that picture and it's just this long, narrow, you know, this long, narrow thing in the streets. Like I would have nowhere to go. No, like, I have, like, I have, it gives me a panic attack. Just <laughs> looking at that picture. It's just, I don't, I like doing up being at outside shows, but I like to go stand in the back and not near anybody um, or off to the side. So I don't know. Like, if I would, wouldn't stand in the back there, I'd be like half a mile down the road by a Waffle House or something like that. But um, so I think that in that regard, um, it's not the show, you know, wouldn't be for me. But I think after the fact, it's really hard to deny how significant this show is in the context of the history of the, you know, within the band's history. Um, I also think it's just, you know, I, it's the band just, I think we see, we talk about Halloween, Halloween past and we did the Halloween shows and we talked about how much we love Halloween 92 and 93. And then we talked about the first time they played at Red Rocks. We did all these firsts and things, but the band then was good, but by this time the band is great. And so the ability to step up you're playing at a time when you need to step it up or you should step it up is, is something that really good bands and great bands can do. And like, this is 95, 96, 97, you know, towards through the end of the, the end of the Hauser years is really when you see the band being able to do that, yeah. you know, again, and plus there's more consistency too. There's not as many, I mean, again, not all the shows are great. Um, everybody knows that, but, um, and not all performances of every songs are uh, even songs they played a bajillion times are, are great. Um, but I think this is just one of those shows where, like you said, it's just it's just on. It all works, and there's really no point in, in picking at it because it's just good. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's awesome that they're able to, you know, step up to the uh, to the challenge, you know, so to speak for for this. So. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed going back down through, going down back down the rabbit hole with the show, and um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we talked, you know, we love Spring '96 and that um, the sort of uh, you know inflection point that Sit and Ski was, and that the you know, and that's where Spring Spring '96 is sort of the launch launch pad out of that. Um, 
you know, I think as we we did that sort of look back at, at the Paris 98 run and that, you know, this is the first time. I mean, that is such a, a crazy sort of like dichotomy that you go from playing in front of like 100 people in this little bar in Paris. And then literally three weeks later, you're in front of 100,000 people at you know, in the middle of the street, uh, in your hometown, it just, I mean, that just seems so crazy. Um, and it really seems like it was, uh, it was a point, uh, just a really important, um, moment in the band's history, not just sort of the historic perspective of it, but just, I think really where it took them from there, you know, moving forward through the travel and light tour and, um, fall 98 and then really just you know as they uh, accelerated in their popularity and um you know it was not a coincidence that that this sort of massive show i think was um you know a, a pretty significant turning point in the band's history well i'm glad we were able to cover it i'm glad that we were able to bring that to grand we were able to sit down with gordon and um we've We've put in a lot of work, but especially Harvey has put in a lot of work over the last couple months. He's the one that puts all these things together, and especially when we did the Light Fuse Getaway shows, uh, making those edits as seamless as possible. So it seemed like it was going to be a real a real show um, for you guys. So we're going to give Harvey the next couple weeks off, so at least he doesn't have to talk. Um, but we're not going to be gone from your from the airwaves. We will still um, bring you some music. Um, we will come back with our what we call our land yaps. So we'll have two weeks of those uh, in the last week of April and the first week of May, and we'll play some selection, play some selections from a show around the dates of the show's release. Um, some stuff, some shows we haven't played before. Um, probably some songs you've heard before, but definitely not some shows you've heard before. So um, we're excited about that. We'll come back in May, and, and Harvey will be rested up. <laughs> and maybe we'll be able to break some news at that point about something exciting we're, we're, we're hoping to do later on in the uh, or later on uh, this spring and into the early summer and uh, yeah so looking forward to uh, getting back together with y'all next week Harvey any closing thoughts for the people um, no just appreciate the continued support and um, you know like we say every week tell your friends you know uh, rate the show on iTunes um you know, feedback is always great. It's been, you know, we got a lot of really good feedback on the Light Fuse Getaway episodes. And um, so hit us up on Twitter, shoot us an email, um, you know, whatever your preferred method of communication is. We, we love to hear it. And um, yeah, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll miss you guys. We'll see how long I can stay away. It may just be a week. We'll see. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it's been a, you know, it's been a pretty good run. We did 55 weeks. Um, I guess we did a couple of the lineup shows in the fall, but um yeah, so uh, you know, it might be nice to have a week off. So, um, anyway, appreciate everybody's support, and um, we'll see you down the road, and we'll talk to you, uh, or at least Jeff will next week. What What are we going to play? Maybe you know, it's like every week we say this at the, like the very last thing. Like, what are we going to play? Like, maybe <laughs> we ought to you know think about this before we record the episode. But um, uh, well, I guess I our, only, really... our only cover this week is Arlene. So maybe we play the. Yeah. Play the original Arlene. Under 17, now you're over 16. Under 17, now you're over 16. I beg you, rock and come in. Because I want general in a day. 
a one general in a day. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Become a win, pan a housing scheme. Fiwa, figo check out the girl, Ali. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. You shouldn't sign me, Gabadi. You shouldn't sign me, Gabadi. Me say go wash it up the street. Me say go wash it up the street. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Every time she see me, she want ice cream. Hold on on her hand and she started to scream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Me say the girl Arlene, she love wear green. Every time me check on she a cook sardine. When me take her out, she wouldn't stop eating. Now the shoulda hear her just a ask me for bean. One little beans, two little beans, three little beans, and a more beans, please. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. Say now in me house, we go cook and clean. When me take a stock, she a read magazine. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. You shouldn't hear me gabadi. You shouldn't hear me gabadi. Me say go stitch it for machine. Me say go stitch it for machine. Because Papa Riley send me down a riverside. Figure hear them sing. This a robot of art. The people love it so. And Jaja know it have to reach number one. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. Arlene, I must a dream, you the dream. You shouldn't sign me gabadi. You shouldn't sign me gabadi. Me say go wash it at the stream. Me say go wash it at the stream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Because I want general in a de dance. I want general in a de yard. With a woman girl, the mommy, the body girl. I want general in a de yard. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Every night me check you, you a cook sardine. Every night me check you, you a cook sardine. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Every time me check you, you ask me to be one little bean, two little beans, three little beans, and a more beans, please. Alina must a dream, you the dream. Oh, this podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com.